As a way to honor all of the mothers on here, from now through Mother's Day weekend, you can grab the My Essential Birth course and get the new bonus birth affirmations track plus matching birth affirmation cards and get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot. Or you can be one of the first five to bundle and save grabbing the My Essential Birth and Postpartum course. And I will personally send you a handmade 100% muslin cotton belly bind with your bonus tutorial video. Plus you get all the bonuses from before the birth affirmation track, matching birth affirmation cards, and you get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot totaling $247 worth of goodies. Head to myessentialbirth.com forward slash get started and join me in the birth course today. Happy Mother's Day. Welcome to the My Essential Birth Podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Stephanie. And we're professional doulas, childbirth educators, and the creators of My Essential Birth, the holistic, empowering online childbirth education course helping mothers everywhere confidently achieve their best birth. So join us each week as we share tips and advice for all things pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be the first to get new content. And head over to www.myessentialbirth.com for more information about our birth course and to join a community of mamas just like you. Before we get started, we would like to invite you to leave a review for this podcast in iTunes. It's a brand new show and it's really important in the launch of a new podcast to gather reviews. Will you please help us spread the word by leaving a review so that more mamas have a chance of finding this podcast when they search for one? We read every single review and we promise to keep doing that. We love what everyone, all of you ladies have been saying about the Pregnancy and Birth Made Easy podcast here with My Essential Birth. So thank you everyone for your continued support. Okay, this week's iTunes Reviewer of the Week is Graceful Bay 94 amazing pregnancy podcast. She said, once I found out I was pregnant, I immediately got overwhelmed with all the things to learn. I'm a major planner who leans towards the natural side. She sounds like me, just throwing that in. (laughs) It was hard to find information that's evidence-based and supports natural methods without being biased. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Courtney and Stephanie do an amazing job of presenting the facts in a fun and informative way and have helped me learn so much. I've gained so much confidence listening to their podcast and going through the birth course. I now feel informed, prepared, and excited for my upcoming birth. I highly recommend listening to this podcast and taking their birth course. You won't regret it. Aww. Well, I have to say, um, you might be one of my favorite reviewers, and I love all of you, but something about that touched me. Just, I have to, I can relate to that overwhelm that I'm a new mom and everywhere I look, somebody has something to say about it. And I have to say that is my favorite part of the podcast is we get to talk openly about it and we joke about things and it is much more real yeah. and relatable and thank goodness their podcast exists. Um, cause it's very different talking about it just yeah. as a conversation versus just teaching you guys about it. So thank you so much. There is a lot of overwhelm. It's kind of like, oh, well, where do I start? You know, and you always want to start with the fun things. Oh, I want to start a baby registry. What kind of swaddle am I going to get them? But really you realize at some point you've really got to hunker down and study. And it's funny because I think some of the old school methods of doing that, well, I've got to buy the what to expect when you're expecting (laughs) book. And I'm not trying to like dog on that book. I'll dog on that book. But, (laughs) but I love that there's, um, 
better ways now to get information and to know where to start. So we're happy to be a piece of that puzzle for you. Absolutely. And you're going to love this week's episode because we are going to come at you with some really helpful and evidence-based information on how to make your birth better. So the topic we're covering this week is outdated policies that are hurting your birth. And what's frustrating to Steph and I is that the 10 things we're going to talk about, they're still in play at mm-hmm. so many hospitals, I would say mostly hospitals, Yep. across the world. Now, I wouldn't even say country. So we're going to come at them, and I want you to listen. We're going to tell you why that policy came about or why it existed, um, how it's hurting your birth, and then we're going to really kind of tell you the truth. So <laughs> let's get Break right it into it. <laughs> okay. The first one is that hospital birth is best for everyone. The reason this existed is because there was kind of a movement in the um, beginning of the 1900s where we discovered how awesome being sanitary is, (laughs) right? We discovered that sanitizing things, you know, doctors washing their hands from bedside to bedside was actually a really great thing. And so everything then all of a sudden that didn't happen in their ultra sterile um, hospital environment just seemed like it had to be bad. So by the mid-1900s, we saw a big push, especially with radio and television, um, newspaper ads. Mm -hmm. We saw this giant push to get women into the hospitals. And you have to remember, we talk about this all the time, you guys, but you are the consumer. You are consuming. You are purchasing a product when you go to a hospital, to a doctor, to a practice. And so these hospitals had one thing in mind, and that was to get customers to get women to come to them. So they did things like not only saying it's the safest, best, most beautiful, luxurious way to give birth, but they also did it by unfortunately demeaning a lot of the midwives that were out yeah, there. They started almost comparing them to like, you know, witch doctors and these granny midwives and, you know, um, kind of almost demonizing them in a yeah. way. They would put pictures of these women, just older women who were also midwives, um, not nicely looking pictures of them into the papers and say things like, is this who you'd want delivering your baby? And they compare that to their, you know, ultra pristine, white, everything, totally clean, you know, come here. The other thing too is, um, we, there was the poll too for anesthesia, right? You can have a pain-free childbirth experience. Come, we've got all the stuff, you know, before the days of like everybody having an iPhone camera. Okay. Cause there is some stuff that happened behind those doors mm. as to why fathers, for example, were not allowed to be back in there in the hospital we'll room delivering that. with mom. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, that was kind of when that sort of outdated policy of hospital birth is best for everyone, sort of, that's where it originated from, but this is how and why it can have the potential to hurt your birth is that the truth of the matter is, is that, um, out of hospital birth today is every bit as safe for the woman who's having a normal, uncomplicated pregnancy. It's every bit as safe as in hospital. And what many women report is that they have a much more personalized and enjoyable experience, um, often out of hospital because of the care and the attention that they receive. Right. The other way that it hurts is it's much more mechanical. So if you look at how birth is done in a hospital, it has evolved in a sense. And that's because you guys are consumers and you have thought to have a different, right. A different experience, but they, it was very like, 
when it first started, they strap mom down. It didn't matter if you had an epidural oh, or not. shave and... Yes. Yeah, they would shave. Shave and an enema. Hair, enema. Yes. Strap you strap down. Strap you down. They, we'll get into medicine later, but they had something terrible called twilight sleep where... Anyways, we'll get into it later. But just know that it's... So we've moved into this better era, but there is something about medical care that stays stuck in the past for a very, very long time. So even with updated information and more evidence-based research. um, But anyway, when you go to a hospital and you guys, we're not dogging on hospitals. I had three wonderful unmedicated hospital births. I loved and appreciated them. There's That's not a wrong place to go. That's not the message that we're trying to give you. We're just wanting you to understand though that the um, notion that hospital birth is best for everyone is wrong. Right. There, and that could, you guys, it's with everything. Like if you were to say that everything is good, like this thing is good for every person. There's no, but nobody, it doesn't yeah. exist no matter what you're talking about. Medical food, anything. Chick-fil-A right? is not good for everyone. <laughs> when you have a son who like doesn't want anything to do with chicken, I'm like, I'm sorry, buddy. That's literally all there is on the menu. Yeah. That's a bad analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Okay. Hospital, but that's the point. Hospital birth is not best for everyone. I think I'm the perfect example of that. Um, because of the way that I labor, which is prodromal labor, it takes me a long time to get going. It takes me a long time to dilate. It's just what my body does. Hospitals have a certain way that they want to see things progress, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, for me, being out of hospital, allowing my body to do what it needs to do, having support, nobody telling me my timeline and what needed to happen when, and guess what? My body gave birth all on its own and did a wonderful job of it. So there, this is just an example. All right. Outdated policy number two that's hurting your birth is that you are overdue at 40 weeks. Ooh. Such a joke, Ooh. guys. <laughs> Let's talk about why... Though this this policy or this kind of rule of thumb exists, um, there is a concern, and you'll hear obstetricians and people express this. There's a concern about having a post due baby, but let's talk about what does it actually mean? What does it really mean to be post due? So a post due baby is a baby that is in so long that the placenta has started to deteriorate. And so I shouldn't say in so long because a placenta cannot deteriorate even with a baby at 44 weeks. But there is a chance after 40 weeks, you want to keep an eye on that placenta to make sure that it's not deteriorating or in other words, not giving the nutrients that it needs to baby, to, to baby. So when baby is born, you'll notice that baby is tiny, like doesn't have a ton of fat on them. And they got kind of like really wrinkly, old looking skin. This baby looks like... like a Benjamin Button baby. Like just like a (laughs) poor little baby's not doing so well in utero, okay? These are extremes. Um, And obviously you'll hear the excuse, well, yeah, they're they're extremes and they don't really exist because we do all these inductions. And I have to disagree with that. Um, They have ways of checking on these things. And so that's things like the non-stress test. Um, So they can check the blood flow that the placenta is getting. They can check on baby, the heart rate, all of that. There's a reason that the tests exist. And that's why we get so uppity about why are you cutting everybody off at four weeks, 40 weeks. The truth is... And there is science to back this up. And I mean from before they started doing hospital births. So they already knew about it, right, in the 1900s. But 41 and one day. 41 weeks, one day. That's the average. The average. Yeah. I think the other thing, too, is that, honestly, being able to have a woman go to 40 weeks and say, okay, you're overdue. We need to schedule an induction or a cesarean birth. It kind of – inductions and cesareans – 
do work better for doctors' schedules. And, they can yeah. predict them. They know that they're not going to be woken up by a phone call at three in the morning um, for a woman going into labor. They can schedule that that birth. Right, and you'll so you'll see them increase inductions and cesarean births increase around holidays and weekends. Yeah, and if you don't believe us, go look at the data, and that's where the concern comes in. We've it's, also. We've also done a whole podcast episode about um, moms who are older and giving birth. And there is some concern there about um, your age at the time that you're pregnant and your baby's being born. Um, I would refer you to that podcast. We can link to it in the show notes. But so there is a little bit of an added concern there, but really not a whole lot to be worried about, as you'll realize when you listen to that. Um, But yeah, like Stephanie said, Um, babies that are taken before they're ready to be born, right? Just the minute you get cut off at 40 weeks, um, they could end up with a possible NICU stay because they're not ready. And um, it can also not be great for your body because if your body's not ready to give birth, it's going to be a cascade of interventions and a potentially really poor birth experience. Just like how there's a growth percentile chart, right? Like, oh, my kid's 80th percentile for height. And your child is considered healthy if they fall within that curve anywhere, whether they're 99% or 10%. I want you to think of your baby's gestation as their in utero growth percentile chart. Meaning some babies are going to be ready at 36 weeks and be totally healthy and ready to be born. And some aren't going to be ready until 42 weeks and it's all okay and it's all normal. The other thing to consider is that if somebody has given you a guest date, they may not have calculated your menstrual cycle correctly, but allowing your body and your baby to dictate their due date will almost always lead to a better outcome, a healthy baby, a mom with a far more pleasant birth experience. Yeah, you touched on that. And I think it's important to kind of add into that. Um, When it comes to due dates specifically, the big thing that we also see done is the ultrasound, right? And Mm -hmm. ultrasounds are off by pounds, give and take all the time. Um, Babies that are measuring big are taken early for that purpose and end up measuring small. Babies that are measuring small end up being big. So you do not use that as um, an exact science. And if you have a provider that's pretending they can use it as an exact science, there is evidence to go against that. That's just not the case. The thing that frustrates me is I would think after providers see this over and over and over again, that they would not be so quick to say it as such an exact, right? Like over and over again. So um, I'll tell you, just as doulas, and we don't see 30 patients a month. We see it all the time. So that should be enough to tell you something's up here. I sort of wonder, though, if if there's a little bit of detachment because it's not their baby and Mm -hmm. it's not their birth experience. That's true. I don't know. All right. The third outdated policy that is hurting your birth is the rule that you can't eat or drink during birth. So let's talk about- This is such a joke. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, if you're going to tell me that it is as much exertion to run a marathon as it is to have a baby, could you imagine not eating or drinking? Like, think about the physical exertion, and that's real. That's ridiculous. No, seriously. So we kind of already mentioned twilight sleep. So back when twilight sleep was a common practice, this is when women were drugged for the entirety of the birth so that they wouldn't feel or even remember the birth. Um, And back when anesthesia practices were really very primitive, they didn't have a great way to keep airways open. And so there was the concern that you could have a reaction to the medications that they keep you on for 
hours, sometimes days, and you would vomit, whatever's in your stomach, aspirate it, and then have a very serious lung infection or even die from choking on whatever's in your stomach. So it became a very common hospital policy to restrict fluid and food intake by mouth, Um, only IV fluids, right? So just like Steph said, this hurts your birth, right? How long do you normally go without eating and drinking? Could you do a marathon? Could you do 15 hours? Because that's the average time for a birth. So what happens to your body's performance if you don't, if you're not able to eat and drink? Provided that your uterus is a muscle, which it is, uh, it's working nonstop. It's producing contractions and starving that muscle of the nutrients and the carbs and the whatever else it's going to need. The water is going to lead to muscle fatigue. Um, but on top of that, if you <laughs> hear me out, and again, policies and practices are different from one place to another. So if you're at a hospital, you're likely what? Maybe get like a cucumber sandwich or like here's some popsicles and some ice cubes or whatever. Yeah. If sometimes guys, if you go to a birth center, you have a home birth, people cook for you. Uh (laughs) Like, Like, let me give you all the nutrients and all the things. And let me tell you as somebody who has been starved and somebody who has been cooked for, I prefer the cooked for. Yeah. You, the energy and not just that, but the love and the care that comes along with like, not just you're allowed to do this, but you need this. Let me support you by giving you this thing. It makes a huge difference. And that's what the studies have shown. Mind you, there really haven't been super intensive studies into um, the effects of not eating and drinking on the uterus. They just haven't studied it. So we don't have that for you, but they have done studies on how satisfied women were with their birth experience when they got to eat well, and, and drink energy and, and fatigue. Well, Common sense, t- listen to your body, right? We tell you all the time, listen to your body. And if you're hungry and thirsty, you need to eat and drink. I, so the birth center birth that I had, we had someone there on the staff that would cook us whatever we wanted. And I wasn't, I ended up not being very hungry during my birth, but it was such a comfort to know that Mm. she was there. And certainly after my birth, we were ordering all kinds of things (laughs) for her to make us. And it was amazing. So I guess what I'm saying is if you're listening to this podcast, because you want to have an empowering, amazing, joyful, confident birth experience, then you should care very much about whether or not your provider is telling you or your birthplace is telling you that you can or can't eat and drink. Because if they're restricting that, I'm telling you, um, even if it's just a mental thing and you're not super hungry anyway, like it's going to play on how you feel about your birth. And you didn't hear it here. But if if I were randomly listening to a podcast, I would want to hear somebody telling me that I should probably bring a cooler with some refreshing snacks and some honey sticks and maybe some protein and beef jerky and anything else I like to eat. And that you wouldn't necessarily have to tell anybody about that if you didn't want to. No. In fact, I've heard... <laughs> such a thing that partners will actually hold on to the food as if they were eating it. I don't know. I've just heard it. (laughs) I've heard of moms who have demanded to nurses when they say, oh, you can only have ice chips. Well, I like mine melted, so (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and drink this. But you didn't hear it from us, right? Just if you were to hear it. All right. Number four policy that is outdated and hurting your birth is when they put you on the clock. So there's kind of a 24-hour rule that if your water's been broken for 24 hours... If you're lucky, it's 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Then you either need like a cesarean or you need to quickly add in medications to speed things up. There's also like this um, sort of rule that hospitals like to see you dilate one centimeter every hour. So why do these things exist? Well, um, the initial concern 
it's been debunked. But the initial concern with the 24-hour, your water's been broken, you need to deliver, was that they were concerned about the potential for uterine infection, right? So if your bag of waters is broken, bacteria can get up in there, cause an infection, not good for mom. Courtney, how does the bacteria to cause an infection get up there? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> From people shoving their fingers up your vagina to do vaginal What, like exams. every hour to make sure you're dilating at a certain rate? What? <laughs> Guys, in case you have not heard us talk about this before, you have good bacteria located in your vagina that is good for that area of your vagina. But when you push it up into the uterine area where it is not meant to be, suddenly that bacteria can cause an infection. Okay, so whatever they're doing with their wonderfully gloved hands um, is, is probably on the hurting side. And this is why we recommend, especially if you are somebody who has your water break during labor, to lessen the vaginal exams. It is to create a safer space for you to not Mm -hmm. have an infection. And just a reminder that dilation means nothing, tells you nothing. As a way to honor all of the mothers on here, from now through Mother's Day weekend, you can grab the My Essential Birth course and get the new bonus birth affirmations track plus matching birth affirmation cards and get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot. Or you can be one of the first five to bundle and save grabbing the My Essential Birth and Postpartum course. And I will personally send you a handmade 100% muslin cotton belly bind with your bonus tutorial video. Plus you get all the bonuses from before the birth affirmation track, matching birth affirmation cards, and you get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot, totaling $247 worth of goodies. Head to myessentialbirth.com forward slash get started and join me in the birth course today. Happy Mother's Day. Yep. It's hurting your birth because what if you could have safely delivered your baby just six hours later, but they decided to cut you off at 24 mm-hmm. and wheeled you in for a cesarean? That's not... For nothing more than an hour thing. Or a, or the concern about potential infection. Just like Stephanie said that there's ways for them to check and see if your placenta is functioning normally past mm-hmm. 40 weeks. There's ways for them to tell if you have an infection. Yes. They can check your temperature. They can... Um, monitor blood pressure, blood pressure, your heart rate. There's all kinds of different ways for them to be able to make sure that mom and baby are doing okay. And they do that. That's part of the policy. So it, it, and the, the sucky part is it can differ from hospital to hospital. I mean, city to city, they can be across from each other and have different policies in play, which tells you that it's not about the patient. It's not necessarily about you. It's about the hospital policies and insurance and whatever else they got going on. So, so the truth of the matter is, um, out of hospital births, women can have their water broken all on its own naturally for, um, far more than 24 hours and deliver a safe and healthy baby. The key component here is having a provider that's watching you and monitoring you and not just jumping the gun based off an assumption or an old notion. Right. Because the truth is you can also have your water broken for six hours and have complications. So yes, yes, it's not. Our point is there these majestic rules that they make up they're they're just outdated they need to be individualized Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah okay number five mom should be on her back for labor and birth steph i bet this is your favorite well it just makes me think of who it's convenient for (laughs) 
right? Okay, women started getting launched onto their backs during labor because it's convenient to look at a vagina while you're sitting down instead of squatting down or underneath it or however mom chooses to give birth. It's absolutely a convenience thing. We will link to this in the show notes, but if you have not watched The Business of Being Born, you absolutely, uh, I think it's free on YouTube. Like you can watch the entire documentary and it's pretty eye-opening, but there's a doctor in there. I love it. And um, he's from another country. He's speaking in a different language and they're, they're talking about it at the bottom, but he says, you know, I can't, if, if mom's up here, you know, she can't be comfortable. She can't get into the right position. She can't listen to her body. She can't push the way she wants to. She, yeah. he, so he gets down on the floor and he's like, no, like I'm down here. Cause that's where she needs me to be. And you know what? That's how, what it should be like. Yeah. You should be allowed to listen to your body in every possible way to intuitively listen to what you need to do to push your baby out comfortably. Absolutely. Um, being on your back is convenient for being hooked up to all the stuff yep. that they have. If you have Her chosen, epidural. yeah, if you've chosen to utilize pain medication during your birth, that's what you wanted. Um, they may think that your only option is for you to be on your back during birth. That's also not true. No. Um, but anyway, you guys, when you're on your back, gravity can't help you out. Mm-hmm. Can't help your baby literally out. It narrows the, um, pelvic outlet when you're pushing, um, smaller space, harder to push you guys and more prone than to interventions to and sort to of tearing help you out. And yeah, we talk about that all the time. If we have a mom even that has an epidural or she's laying on her back, we always try and get her up her into a squatting in, position. In a squat. Yes. Yeah. Or in, in a side squat. Exactly. Because the truth is that the more leaned back you are, the more likely you are to tear. Yep. It's like pushing a bowling ball uphill. That's literally what's happening when you're trying to help your baby through. We've talked about this before. Try to poop while you're standing on your head. <laughs> Do it. Just, just for funsies. It's what just, it's not comfortable. <laughs> that lack of movement from you being on your back can cause stalls in labor. So the truth of the matter is laboring off of your back allows gravity and movement to help you progress. Um, it gives you the freedom, like Steph said, to get into the most comfortable position. It opens your pelvic outlet significantly more than having that tailbone squished in. So just get off your back. Number six, that VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean is a high risk complicated pregnancy that you should not be doing. This exists because this is what is taught and brought down from the medical schools. So the fear is that a mom's uterus will rupture and you will have minutes to harvest the placenta or um, make sure that the baby's okay, get the baby out and make sure that everybody's safe. Now, absolutely, there are emergencies like this that exist, but let me explain here because this is very, very important. The percentage that a mother's uterine uterus will rupture between a mother who has never had a baby and a mother who has had a vaginal or who has had a cesarean birth is practically the same, which means if we're talking about risk, they are so dang close that it is like tiny bits of a percentile that make that any bigger. The other part of that is that not every uterus that ruptures ruptures in such a way that it is an immediate um, danger to mom and baby. The truth is you can have a ruptured uterus that is a little bit ruptured, a lot of ruptured, all the way ruptured that can cause damage for mom or baby or both. Um, And the other side of that is you can have a totally normal birth, whether or not you've had a cesarean before. So the fact that a provider will immediately put you into a high risk category is a giant red flag. Okay. We have to understand that some of these doctors and providers have been not only taught such a thing, but then have been at such births where they truly believe that the emergency or it would have 
have turned into such a thing um, if they weren't there to, to perform these life-saving measures. And in some regards, we totally respect the fact that that might be the case. But the other side of it is that it is actually very, very safe and the evidence supports that. So scaring women into believing that having a vaginal birth after cesarean is unsafe or risky for them means that that woman is more likely to be pushed into a repeat cesarean birth, which is actually riskier for her than to attempt a vaginal birth. Um, it also, I feel like, does something to the morale. and Big time. Yeah, it hurts mentally for that to happen. Yeah, they're also um, more often pushed into induction, which is actually a way to increase the chances of complications yeah. and a repeat cesarean birth. Yeah. So the truth is that VBAC is very safe. Um, I would say do your research. We're not going to get into all the evidence we here. Have an We've episode done that about before. It. Yeah, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. But just know that the evidence is on your side. All right. Number seven of the outdated policies that are hurting your birth is that routine episiotomy is for everyone. So just to review, an episiotomy is where they take scissors and they cut into um, the vagina at the base of the vagina, the skin that's in between your vagina and your rectum. And they believe that they're doing this to help create more space for baby, especially in first time moms. Um, this existed because maybe moms who were pushing on their backs and maybe under the influence of pain medications um, may have a harder time to feel when and how to push, causing pushing to take longer. And so perhaps this was deemed as necessary. Um, and perhaps it's also a convenience thing. It is a convenience thing. It hurries things up for them, yep. right? Big time. And I will also maybe try to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here and say that maybe it was viewed as a better alternative to the archaic, horrible practice of using forceps. Mm. Um, or maybe they think it's better than vacuum extraction. Um, but how it hurts? Well, um, there can be a time and a place for an episiotomy, but be sure that the emergency that's requiring that episiotomy isn't iatrogenic, which is a fancy word that just means doctor caused. Um, understand that in most cases, an emergency episiotomy was likely preventable. Well, if mom had been pushing in a better position, even if it wasn't convenient for the doctor, or if baby wasn't being made to sit in the birth canal waiting on the doctor, or if mom hadn't been given certain medications. The other side of this on how it might hurt is, here's the truth, um, scissors don't discriminate. This is Courtney's big thing. Yeah, I mean, she don't. talks about this all the time, but it's true. Um, if you're allowed to tear on your own, you might have a tiny superficial tear. You might have no tearing. You might have the same amount of tearing that scissors would cause. But if you do scissors, you're going to get a second degree tear every single time. And that means that you're cutting through muscles and nerve endings and you're looking at stitches and a harder recovery no matter what. Um, and the tricky part of that is for some women, and we're not doing talking about this to scare you or anything, but for some women, that healing never quite completes and finishes and sexual intercourse or some other things afterwards are not quite the same. So I think it's fair Right with everything we talk about, mm -hmm. give us the benefits, give us the risks. How often does that actually happen? Very, very rarely, if ever. I don't know that I've actually heard it. In fact, even when it comes to things like birth control, or th I've had one provider actually tell me risks of these things, like the serious risks and side effects without me having to read a pamphlet. So you have to be aware that these things are going on in the background. Um, and just because they're not saying it doesn't mean it's not a risk. 
You don't want scissors cutting up your vag. That's like how that's hurting your birth. It's going to be more painful. You just don't want them down there. So make sure your birth partner, your doula, you are paying really close attention. Um, But I would say do your leg work before you even get to that delivery room. Talk to your provider. How often do they do episiotomies? If they start saying things like, well, I really recommend them for first time moms, you get your butt out of that office and do (laughs) not take your perineum elsewhere. Yeah, take your perineum elsewhere. The truth. Okay, hold on. The other part of that, and Courtney does a wonderful demonstration. We should do this on IGTV. Okay, if you make a little snip in in some fabric, like if you're pulling on fabric, piece it, of paper, it even. takes or a piece of paper, it takes a little bit to get it going. If you make a snip, how much easier is it for that snip to spread? And the truth is, when you do a little snip with scissors and you push a baby through it, that. It, it tears. It You've tears gone to Joanne Fabrics before, and you're like, I need two yards of whatever this is, right? What does she do? She makes a little snip, and then with a lot of fabrics, depending on the fabric, she can tear the rest of the way. Yes, exactly. Don't snip it, ladies. So here's the thing. We have seen the tiniest, Stephanie, of first-time moms <laughs> birth large babies, big-headed babies, without scissors, or in some cases, without even tearing, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because they were given the freedom to, one, birth their baby when they felt ready and they had the urge to push. Two, birth their baby in whatever position felt best for them. And three, they had a patient provider, Mm -hmm. someone who acted as the lifeguard, right? They're allowing birth to unfold naturally and they're only going to jump in and intervene when absolutely necessary. Um, again, with the exception of like true life-saving measures, tearing naturally will always be better than episiotomy. Um, your body is naturally going to tear around all the important stuff. Yeah. And we say this understanding that some women have had a little more on the extreme side. I will say probably the majority of women that would give us a little bit of their information regarding that would be women who have some kind of medication, um, either in the form of a narcotic where it's a little numbing in the area, um, spinal or an epidural. So, and that again, like Courtney said, has a lot to do with positioning. So the other way that you can prep that area, the number one thing that you can do is to learn to squat. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. like you're doing medicine ball squats. I mean, you're sitting in a squatted position, like a toddler, like a toddler, and you are breathing deep, letting that area kind of breathe out with every breath and you're stretching it. That is your way to stretch it before it's go time. So if you're not doing those already, pick them up on our three free exercises, work on that. And I promise that'll make the difference. The last three outdated policies that are hurting your birth that we're going to talk about are actually more in relation to your baby. All right. Outdated policy number eight, we're going to cut and clamp baby's cord. I guess it's the other way around. see that thing squirting everywhere. Never mind. Stop. Reverse that. Okay. Outdated policy number eight is to clamp and cut the cord immediately. (laughs) Now, Stephanie and I were just talking about why did this exist? Convenience. When you think, okay, for those of you who have given birth in a hospital, you, you had a doctor, how long were they actually in your room for? If you think about the entirety of your birth, it was like just just a brief little. Thing. I mean, percent wise, it was probably around one, <laughs> like one maybe hour, five percent of your birth time. Yeah. Uh, anyways, the point is, they're in and out crazy, crazy fast. They come in when it's pushing time, and this isn't for all of them, but this is the majority. And from the beginning of time, when we're talking about hospitals, they come in for the actual pushing part. They catch baby, put baby on you, clamp, cut, clean you up. They're gone. And so that's just part of it. Um, As far as the evidence goes behind it, 
and we were talking about this a little before, mm-hmm. um, there is some increased chance of jaundice and stuff, but I have to tell, it just seems so unnatural. And that's due to the increase in the red blood cell count. Here's, I think we've talked about this before. No, you say you're... Th- no, I was, it's, uh, to me, it's like unnatural and archaic to like, I birthed a baby, they're going to throw it on me and then cut it off. Like you're going to disconnect me immediately. It just, anyways, there's a lot of very important and good information that shows the iron, um, the baby's allergies uh, months later. All There's really good things to just let nature kind of take its course, which would be allowed to, or to be, to allow your placenta to finish pumping that blood to baby. The cord goes white. It's your baby's it blood. Pulsating. It's your baby's there's blood. There's a reason it does it. Yeah. It's not, it's not a flaw in the system. Birth is meant to be not like rushed. I, I hope that you can see that. That's not, how, it's not how nature intended it to be. Yeah. That blood that's pumping through the cord, that's not your blood. That's your baby's blood. And that blood belongs to them. And Well, it's not like you're going to get it if you clamp it off. Right? <laughs> and what they found is that when baby squeezes through the birth canal, they leave about a third of their blood supply behind in the placenta. To and fit. It, in order to in get In order to fit. So then to like cut them off. I mean, how do you think you would feel? Would you feel like super energized and super right. vi- Would you have a ton of vitality and feel really healthy if you suddenly lost a third of your blood supply? That's your baby's blood. It belongs with them. This hurts your birth because that's your baby's blood. It's meant for them. And the truth of the matter is that they can absolutely wait until the cord stops pulsating. If you have a provider that just isn't willing to budge and wait for it to stop pulsating, you could get a new provider or you could compromise and say, fine, at three minutes, I know about 80% of that blood has transferred, then I'm okay with you clamping and cutting. Right. Yeah. So the truth is um, not just the like technical parts of it, right? But it's how we feel about it as moms. And so you do you, whatever feels best for you and your baby. Obviously, you know by now we 100% support whatever your decision is. Um, but the truth is, if that's something that is important to you, then it should be respected. Number nine, the weighing and swaddle versus the skin to skin. Now this exists. Why does this exist? Again, it's a convenience thing, right? Mm-hmm. They can hurry on their merry way. I think also maybe they liked the idea of presenting a clean burrito baby to yeah. mom rather yeah. than one covered in vernix and well. And if, if I was a nurse and I love my job and I can't wait to get my hands on that, like it's not like a mean thing or like a, a you're not trying to be. It's procedural, is right? What it is. And it's your job, and like you're happy to do it. And so, like I get that part of it. Um, but we've certainly learned over the years how important and imperative skin to skin is. And it's not just cause it feels good, although that is actually a large part of it. Um, but it does all kinds of other things. What else does it do? It will, if you miss that skin to skin contact, um, you're kind of missing out on some of the psychological benefits that can come Big to your time. baby. There's also benefit to mom as well. Having them immediately against your skin allows your body to, um, kind of clamp down on that uterus, Um, help the placenta to expel more quickly. Like it's good for both of you. And so missing out on that can hurt. Now we understand there may be extenuating circumstances if um, baby's in really poor health and they need to get to work on them. Um, We're not talking about those situations. Right, totally. Um, The other thing that kind of gets me, uh, maybe I shouldn't get into this too much, but when they do the body temps, do you know what I'm talking about? And then they put them in the warmer and they're like, well, this is way warmer. No, we, uh, okay, maybe. So get me some warm blankets and put my baby on my chest. And then put a warm blanket yes, on top of exactly. it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think I think that drives me crazy because 
I think altogether the the goal should be able to be keeping mom and baby together, even when we're talking about body temp and stuff. That's the important that kangaroo care is so important. The human body, the female human body is incredible. Did Mm -hmm. you know that when your baby is skin to skin with you, your body will either heat up if your baby's too cold or cool down, if they're too warm naturally, just by having them against your skin. Yeah, but it can't do that if your baby's in the warmer. That's or if they're right. swaddled in a blanket. <laughs> right. Um, you've got to have them skin to skin. It's great for a breastfeeding relationship. So anyway, another outdated policy that's not good for you, not good for your baby. Lastly, coming in at number 10 is the assumption that every single baby born needs eye ointment and a hepatitis vaccine immediately within the first hour of birth. Yeah, which is kind of a joke. So the reason that this exists is because chlamydia is a reason that we do the eye ointment. Okay, erythromycin is given so that women who have an active outbreak in chlamydia, which sometimes you cannot see, um, they can in some cases become blind or have issues with their eyes. The baby. The baby, yes. Doesn't blind the mom. You guys should know that by now. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so that is a real concern. And the issue is, like I said, that you can't necessarily tell who's having an active outbreak, who doesn't, so they do it across the board. So if you know... Um, you and your partner have been only with each other, neither of you have a sexually transmitted disease, specifically chlamydia or gonorrhea, then you you can absolutely refuse the eye ointment. The trouble that we see with the eye ointment um, is on top of it being unnecessary in very small percentages, although this is a risk, we can have some babies who are allergic to it, which will obviously create other problems. Um, but then two, it blurs the vision. And this is a it's special- like putting Vaseline in your eyes. Right, it's a special bonding time for mom and baby. Babies so, can see 12 inches, which is about the distance from your breast to your face. And that's not by chance. That's absolutely by divine design. And so they're there to study and see your face. And we're putting gobs of stuff in their eyes. Like, I was just thinking, like, what if you had, like, giant breasts? You're like, actually, that's 24 inches. My, <laughs> my baby can't see anyways. Oh, Give him the oil. Those are some <laughs> saggy boobs. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Or, like, just giant, you know? Yeah. Okay. Stephanie's, like, as she's saying this, she's looking down at herself and, like, miming. <laughs> wishing wishing I was a little more, I was 24 <laughs> inches endowed. <laughs> Anyway, so I just think it's disruptive. You know, if it's necessary, you know that you have that going on, then it's needed and it's a wonderful blessing. But if you know you don't have that stuff going on, then it can wait too. It can wait. Um, Hepatitis B, don't feel like that if you decline that within the first hour of baby's birth that, you know, you're suddenly an anti-vaxxer or that you can't get it later. Your baby can have it at any point. They can go at their one week, two week, whatever week visit. You can even have it before you leave the hospital for Pete's sake if that's what you choose to do. The reason they want to give it within the first hour of birth is because if you you have hepatitis B, if your baby comes in contact with um, bodily fluids like blood, or semen, if your baby's going to be using drug needles, right? That <laughs> this, have guys, this B. is from the actual pamphlet. Not we kidding. will link it in the show notes. If your baby's a junkie from birth, they're shooting up. Like, <laughs> yeah, they need a hepatitis B vaccine right just, away. Though, like, if you know, like, fam- like you said, family and friends, you know that this baby, or you're yeah. worried about they're this gonna baby come coming in contact. in contact, then yes, absolutely. Again, not anti-vax here. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things where it doesn't have to happen is it within necessary? the first hour. Right. And we- then it becomes your choice. Yeah. So if that's the case, then I, we, our big thing is choice. Mothers deserve the choice. So yes. So just, we just want you to know it's okay if you choose to get it. It's okay if you don't just know that 
just because you decline it within that first hour doesn't mean that they can't get it later. Yep. We hope you enjoyed this horribly long episode. (laughs) (laughs) We actually, we do. We have a ton of fun making these, you guys. Um, And we do try to keep it light and airy because we know some of these things can be really heavy. heavy. And so uh, just know, again, we love every single one of you. We support every single one of you. The whole point is to give you the options so that you have them in the first place. But also, can I just say this? We're also kind of hoping that you'll go and be really good consumers. Yeah. That you'll go and you're going to start to question some of these outdated policies with your provider, with your birthplace, with your hospital, wherever you're going, that you're going to start to bring enough awareness to these issues within your own community that maybe they actually start to change. Maybe they start to actually listen to what the American Academy of Obstetrics and Gynecology is telling them to do and implement um, what's actually evidence-based instead of waiting decades for the policies to catch up with the research. Totally. The truth is, if you're here you're looking for something, right? And I think it's conversations like this that perked my ears up, that piqued my interest enough to say, wait, why do they do these things? Mm-hmm. And then that, that forced me into some of my own research. So I'm absolutely with Courtney. If you guys get a whiff of this and you get excited about it, then it becomes your responsibility, not only for yourself, but to share it with other people. And and as we talked before, guys, you're the consumers. That's how the policies change. Yep. Use your dollars. Shop with your dollars. Vote with your dollars. All right, mamas, we will be back with more tips and advice soon. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe so that you get notifications first about new episodes. And don't forget to head over to myessentialbirth.com for more information on the birth course and to join our online community serving pregnant mamas just like you. 